Hello everyone to this episode of the Langefam podcast. I'm here today with uh, Elisabeth Tiselius, who is in town for a workshop. We'll talk about that in just a second. We're here in, not in a studio, but in a co-working space in Brussels, which is called The Mug, which is a first for me. We're recording on site and uh, Elisabeth is sitting right in front of me. Hello, how are you? Hi, I'm very well, thank you. And thank you for having me. Sure, it's my pleasure. Um, I just said you're here in town for a workshop because you're usually not based in Brussels. Um, can you tell us what the workshop is about? Yes, I live in Stockholm and I'm responsible for the teacher training at Stockholm University. And the conference interpreting training, uh, typically in Europe and also in other places, have a lot of, of cooperation with the SKIK, so the interpreting unit at the European Commission. And one of the things they do, and which we're very happy about, is giving pedagogical assistance of different sorts, and this is one of them. Uh, this is a workshop for trainers, so a training for trainers course. And... Um, for a week we dive into all the all the pedagogy and didactics of teaching conference interpreting and it's very good because you get a lot of input both from very seasoned trainers at Skeek but also for, from different universities, different settings, different student groups and yeah, so very, very interesting and um, I think we have to mention it's not entirely altruistic that uh, SKIC has, has the, this pedagogical assistance scheme because, um, of course, we want to improve interpreter training, but of course, we're also interested in having good interpreter training so that we can have good candidates that would eventually work for us. Exactly. You want to train the trainers so that they yeah. do the right thing, right? Exactly. Well, what we consider the right thing, which is not always the same as what is needed on the national markets, but I think that's, a, that's another podcast episode right there. Um, but it's not the only part of pedagogical assistance, uh, actually, because there's an annual conference as well, yes. where SKIC meets universities. Yes, there's an annual conference called SKIC Universities, <laughs> where we are all, I'm, I usually joke about it because I say that we're all called into Brussels to know what we're going to do the next year, <laughs> yeah. uh, which is partly true, mm -hmm. but also it's a very, again, it's a very good networking uh, opportunity. It's very good to, they usually invite very good uh, presenters to present different current topics in, in the interpreting world, such as training or pedagogy or research. Mm -hmm. And um, and it's also the, the you know, the take-home message from Skeek. What, what would we like you to concentrate on? <laughs> and typically also an, an open forum where, where the trainers can ask questions and, and put forward suggestions and so on and obviously there's a lot of people there and many interpreting programs and universities so obviously it's difficult to make yourself heard but I think that yeah basically it's a good opportunity for exchange of views and network and so on. Yeah I was just going to say because so many people are there it's, it's also a very good networking event uh, and it's usually it gets quite a bit of coverage on Twitter as well at least that's been the case during recent years which is very nice because then people can follow along from, from anywhere, basically. Yes, and they web stream it, always. That's true, yes. So that's also good. So you can, and I think you can even go back and, and watch earlier. Yes. Uh, earlier versions of the Skik universities. So. so I'll probably put the link in the show notes, yeah, because you can go, I think, quite a while back in the archives. So the least six or seven editions of the conference should be online. 
uh, not only the recording, including interpretation. So if you want to listen in to how we interpret, you can listen to that. But you can also read the, the slides and the presentation. So I'll put the link into the show notes afterwards. Um, so that's for pedagogical, uh, pedagogical assistance. And I, I already said that what the European institutions need in terms of future interpreters is not necessarily the same as um, what the schools or the universities do, because often there's a, a bit of a difference between what the private market in those countries needs and, and what we need. Um, so since you're teaching in, in Stockholm, in, in Sweden, what's what's your take on that? Do you mainly train for the institutions or what, what does the market look like just in general terms in Sweden or in Scandinavia for that matter? I don't know. Well, we didn't have an interpreting market before we joined the EU. It was uh, very small, mainly focused on Nordic languages. So the Nordic Council had interpreters. Uh, there were no training program in Sweden, uh, and uh, and the only the the big issue for Sweden was uh, was community interpreting or interpreting for different migrant communities. Um, and th so, therefore, when we started our first interpreting program at university, uh, or there had been a few before, but but not very, uh, how shall I say, uh, not very formalized. So one-off uh, training. So when we started this more formalized, more university-like training, it was really... Sorry, this was which year when you started? In 1994, 93. In 1993 okay. was the first course, yeah. So they would, uh, they would graduate just before the, the, the Swedish referendum in 1995. Yeah. Or, sorry, autumn of 94, and we joined in... Yeah, in 95, yeah. yes. And, um, and when that started, uh, I mean, we were completely turned towards the European institutions. Mm -hmm. and, and also there was an extreme lack of Swedish interpreters. So obviously, if you pass the course, you, it was basically a ticket if not as a staff interpreter, at least on the freelance list. Yeah. Obviously, there were tests at the institutions as well, but because the lag was huge, uh, there was a very, I wouldn't say easy to get in, but at least you weren't restrained by the fact that we don't have any places or we don't have any more space for you. Um, so this means that our training up until now has been very much driven by the European market and the European institutions. And even in, to the extent that when there was a, a considerable change in the demand for Swedish interpreting due to Swedish government policy, mm -hmm. uh, we stopped uh, giving interpreting training for seven years. Be because the Swedish government did not insist on having interpretation in because Brussels? The, because the Swedish government uh, decided that they would go, they would be in the forefront of stopping the interpreting oh. in the European Union. Oh, yes. <laughs> and by and doing that, they would have to be a role model, of course, and mm -hmm. therefore they uh, asked for the mere minimum of interpreting. Mm -hmm. This was a huge blow to the Swedish interpreting market, mm -hmm. needless to say, but also it's, we stopped training interpreters. Mm -hmm. despite the fact that it might still be needed on the private market and under different conditions. But uh, conference interpreters were not trained for a seven-year period. Mm -hmm. And now we have rethought and, and recast our training a lot, mm -hmm. I think, and we're still in the process of doing that because we feel that we need to have a training which is regular because it costs too much to have such a big... Uh, intermission or interruption. 
Yeah, because you basically start from scratch. At you some, have to start to some from extent. scratch, and it's mm. very expensive. Uh, so, um, but 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 that also means that we need to train f- more for the Swedish market, mm-hmm. and for the Swedish market, um, interpreting, first of all, is not very big. But those mm. that are in need absolutely need a retour. And which you, is usually English. Or? Which is English or French and German. Okay. Yeah, mm-hmm. English is the big language, but French and German also. And and you would also have to be trained to work for uh, for the community, doing community interpreting. Um, so the conference interpreting program is not going to teach community interpreting, obviously, yeah. but uh, we need to start thinking about retour. Yes. Uh, and we've not done that before, because that's a must for a Swedish market. And we also, we've not really taught marketing for interpreters because you didn't need to market yourself. Yeah. You just had to pass the, inst- the, the test at the institutions. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. And whereas now uh, the, the situation is different, the interpreter needs to market him or herself and, and have a solid retour and so on and so forth. So, but we're still in the process of doing all this, so we're not there okay. yet. But yeah, that's an adaption to the market, as you mentioned. Yeah. But what is, is your impression that the demand in Sweden sort of developed because you were training interpreters or was that just coincidence or? I think the demand in Sweden developed because of the European Union as well. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of meetings held in Sweden were organized or, or demanded uh, by different European agencies or um, institutions or um, even, you know, European Works Council. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is not, of course, the European institutions, but still related. Yeah, related to that, uh, or the, uh, the trade unions who also meet. And because of that, uh, a lot of demand came up for uh, interpreting. Mm-hmm. Um, in Sweden, we also have a, um, a pretty grim situation with agencies undercutting mm-hmm. each other. So it is difficult on the Swedish market. I wouldn't say anything else, but still... So translation agencies or language yeah, exactly. Transla- translation and interpreting agencies oh. who uh, are bidding for the best bid. And mm-hmm. and not only... And maybe I shouldn't blame everything on them either, because there's also the agencies of meeting mm-hmm. event uh, organizers who, mm-hmm. who bid for the event and who tend to forget about interpreting. So yes, mm-hmm. but... But therefore, market, the marketing for the individual interpreter becomes more important, of course. Mm. How are you trying to cover that marketing? Because my impression from traditional interpreter training is that it's, it's a bit of an afterthought. And people only now sort of realize that it has to be done. And sometimes the professional associations would step in or maybe give a talk or a presentation. Um, how do you try to cover that? Well, not so well yet, mm. I, I think, too. We have our professional organization, of course, AIC, which is very active in Sweden, luckily. Uh, they come in and do presentations. We also have the, the bigger agencies, the bigger interpreting and translation agencies coming in and do presentations. Mm. Uh, but I think that we should have a unit uh, towards the end of the training um, solely on how to market yourself and, and what you need, um, mm. you know, web presence or how to deal with uh, negotiating a price or <clears throat> or how do you even get in touch with those agencies in the yeah. first place and what to do when an agency show up and you don't know what it is, what that type of agency is and so on and so forth. Mm. Because I we are very... Um, 
interpreting is is a sort of apprenticeship training still, right? Because the teachers yeah, are active interpreters. Mm. Uh, and and I'm not sure we should get out of it, but we have to realize that that's the way it is. But it means that as trainer, we still have a lot of contact with our students afterwards, and obviously we encourage them to get in touch when they if they have iffy uh, proposals. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I think we can get better to make them more independent from the beginning, and that would also sort out a bit of that apprentice, because you don't want to be in a situation where you get a job because your teacher recommends you, right? That's mm-hmm. not the right way uh, to go about it either, maybe. Well, at least if, if you have to rely, rely on it, that's probably not ideal. But I mean, no, no. in theory, there's probably nothing wrong with that, no, at least no. to get started. Not from an ethical point, yeah. but if that's the only way, if you have to rely on having good relationship with former teachers, mm-hmm. yeah. it might be difficult too. So you mentioned in the beginning that there was basically no interpreter training in, in Sweden. So that leads me to the question how you became an interpreter. You, did you train uh, abroad? I trained in Belgium, mm-hmm. but that was just because I missed the deadline for application for the second uh, interpreting training course in Sweden. Mm-hmm. <laughs> My way into interpreting was a highly um, random, or I don't know what to say, <laughs> path. Uh-huh. It was nothing I really planned for. I um, <clears throat> um, it started with um, it started with some somebody's always sowing a seed somewhere, mm-hmm. right? So that's uh, a good way I, of putting it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's true. So uh, I I trained to become a teacher. Mm-hmm. That was my first uh, academic training, and it took a long time to decide to go into academia again. Language teaching. Uh, language so, teaching, yeah. French and English. I um, when I finished high school, I vowed I would never uh, go into a classroom ever again. <laughs> I can understand. <laughs> uh, and I wanted to work with horses. Mm-hmm. So obviously, five years later, when my horse career did not work out as I thought it would, and I had to decide what to do, it wasn't with a happy feeling. I went back to academia, mm-hmm. and I don't think I would have done it hadn't it been for teacher training not being popular then either. (laughs) So they had this last minute enrollment. In July, I enrolled to begin in August. That was in Brussels or Mons? No, this was in Sweden. In in the early 1990s. And, um, God, I'm ancient. (laughs) um, I can cut this out. (laughs) No, it's okay. (laughs) I think I like to be ancient. But anyhow, uh, so I, I reluctantly went back to academia and realized I loved it. It was really nice. I loved teacher training. I was totally committed to become a teacher. I uh, got all up and about about second language acquisition. Yeah. Uh, so I went to this conference on second language acquisition where I met a lovely lady whose husband was an interpreter at the European Union. <laughs> okay. and, uh, and I wouldn't have known hadn't I bought her coffee. Mm-hmm. Uh, just you know you get up from the table and anyone else for coffee and she yeah. was the only one saying yes so I sat next to her <laughs> and found out her husband was an interpreter and she heard that I was Swedish and I had English and French and she said oh but my husband says that there's a huge lack of Swedish interpreters now and you have to mm-hmm. check that out um, and you know that sounded fun but I was also very determined to become a teacher so uh, we parted and nothing more and and um, 
But that was the seed you were mentioning earlier? Sorry, that was the seed. seed. Exactly, that was the seed. Mm. Because a couple of months later, when I was visiting Brussels for other reasons, I actually called her mm. and said that, well, you know, your husband said that um, that he'd be happy to show me around and maybe it would be interesting after, a while, mm. after all. Um, so he did. And I met him and I was shown around and... Mm. I'm very ashamed to say that he put me in a booth and I interpreted into and out of all the possible languages and I thought it went so well. <laughs> and I'm very happy nobody record me, recorded me then. Yeah. And I'm even more ashamed of, of saying, admitting that I even told him that I'd done that and that it went so well. Yeah. And he was kind enough not to... <laughs> it's just glossing over it. Exactly. Not taking me out of that impression. Yeah. Right there and then, yeah. <laughs> mm. uh, but he took me to the then head of Danish booth, who was uh, he also head of the Scandinavian booths because we had just joined. Yeah. And who also said that, you know, but we're desperately lacking interpreters and you must apply. And and, mm. and I knew then, because this was in June, and I knew that that uh, the, the time for application was in April. So I was like, yeah, nice, but <laughs> it's not going to happen. Yeah. And he insisted and he said, but I have this professor, I have a friend in Mons who is an interpreting mm. professor, could you please contact him and see if he can organize something? Uh-huh. Uh, so I contacted the professor and, the, and, uh, they, um, and they said that if you're willing to come to Mons, we have a Scandinavian department and we'd be happy to teach you. Do they still have that? Yes, they yes. still do. I wouldn't recommend okay. anybody with Swedish mother trying doing that though, because the, it's basically based on Danish. Mm. And it was really hard to to not be taught in your mother tongue. Mm. Uh, and I relied a lot, again, on the institutions because I could come back to the European Parliament and do uh, all the... <clears throat> they had a stage at the, at the same time yeah. for uh, Swedish interpreters and I could participate as much as possible mm. in that stage parallel to my training. And if they hadn't done that, I wouldn't have passed. No way. <laughs> uh-huh. But that way I got the exposure to Swedish mother tongue that I needed and it went well, so. And that was a a two year course? Uh, No, that was a one year, no, yes. They had, I don't know if they still do that, but they have a four year typical BA interpreting Mm -hmm. training. And then at that time they also had a one year on the master's level, une maîtrise, Mm -hmm. uh, for conference interpreting. And that was the one I I took. And I passed avec distinction, so I was very happy. (laughs) And did you then go back to Sweden first, or did you go straight to taking the test? No, I I also have the the bad habit of being married to an army officer, so... uh, (laughs) 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 Yeah, so the reason I I even got to Mons was that he was, at that time, he was in Bosnia with the UN mission. Mm. And I don't, I'm not sure I would have left him and go, gone for a year to Mons if he'd not been in, in Bosnia. Yeah. Uh, but he was away and I, I didn't have anything to do. And my teacher training was about to... I graduated from my teacher training and, you know, I, mm-hmm. I could just as well do that as anything else. Uh, when I was um, abroad for uh, my semester abroad uh, from university, I was in, in Russia and I, I had already... Um, I already lived together with my then future wife and she said, okay, well, I might as well go somewhere else. And then she spent a few months in, in the Hague. Yeah. So 
Yeah. I can relate to that, yeah. <laughs> and if you don't have, I mean, it is also, of course, you have to be determined, mm. but it is, it is also a sort of sequence of events that mm. if, if they happen at the same time, then... Things just fall into place somehow. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And uh, so I finished my interpreting training and I got a two-month stage mm. uh, from the European Parliament to sort of fill, <laughs> fill in the gaps. <laughs> <laughs> so is that like like an in-house training? Yes, uh, yes. that's an in-house training. Um, obviously, it was less languages at that time yeah. in in ninety. It was yeah before the big bang enlargement, as they yeah. call it. Yes. So in ninety six, it was less less languages at, mm. and less booths, which mm. meant that the um, the uh, train uh, the trainees had much more time to spend in booth mm. and and time to be on site. Mm. And I guess security wasn't as serious either, oh, yeah. so we had our own trainee badge. Yeah. That wouldn't be possible anymore, <laughs> no. I think. Yeah. And we could walk around quite freely. Mm. So what we did was, apart from, from interpreting as much as we could, of course, but we mm. also walked around to different committee meetings and and different working group meetings and just taking notes. And obviously, before your test, that's extremely useful. Yes, that's true. Um, so I did that for two months after mm. my training course, and then in July, um, end of July, I did a freelance test and passed. But then, due to my husband, or <laughs> thanks to my husband, maybe, uh-huh. I had to go back and live in Stockholm okay. uh, because he couldn't. I mean, uh, an army officer doesn't move that freely, especially yes. Sweden isn't a member of the NATO, so mm-hmm. they don't move that freely <laughs> around. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so I went back to Sweden and worked on a freelance basis. And obviously, that gives you uh, a little bit of of uh, um, missions and assignments, but not mm. that much. Yeah. So you worked both in Brussels slash Strasbourg and in Sweden. Yes, and yeah. in Sweden, and yeah, as much as I could because I didn't have a retour. So okay. uh, I did a lot of community interpreting, mm. where maybe the retour requirements are less. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, yeah. Uh, no, yeah. Uh, less demanding and uh, and also uh, the private market into Swedish. Mm-hmm. Mm. So what do, what does the private market look like? I'm I'm just trying to imagine because in Germany you would have companies, small companies, big companies that have meetings with clients or you know a, a conference with people and um, they would have interpreters. But you said in the beginning that there wasn't much of a market to begin with. Um, so what what kind of jobs would that be? That would be um, in Parliament. Mm. Uh, and and uh, government having guests or visitors mm. or lectures. Uh, the uh, the Nobel Prize week is of course right, yes. busy, uh-huh. uh, depending on your language combination, of course. But usually there are lectures that need to be uh, interpreted. And that would be simultaneous, usually, I suppose. Usually simultaneous, yeah, depending mm. on the. Of, of course, their their um, foreign lectures they have been translated beforehand, mm. unfortunately. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but they also have a lot of informal lectures yeah. uh, where interpreting is sometimes in demand, at least. And um, and then European Works Council, of course, uh, and also different, as I said, missions from the European Union to Sweden. Yeah. Uh, investigating or looking or meeting different things. Um, it used to be academic conferences quite a lot as mm. well, but I, I actually spoke for my students' uh, account. I spoke to the uh, event services at the university and mm. they said, you know what, they've cut almost every, all the interpreting now. Mm. 
Uh, we used to have a lot of interpreting 10 years ago, and now yes. it's down to using English. It's all English. Yeah. yeah. So that's sad. So I, I suggested that my, maybe my students could come along still, and maybe people would feel that that would be a, yeah, <laughs> an sure. added value. Yeah. So that's what we'll try to arrange next year. As long as the infrastructure is in place, that, exactly. that should be possible. Yes. Yeah, Because that was the case in at Leipzig University, where I studied, that we would have conferences from time to time or public events where we would just man the booth and, and have some proper experience. So that, that was nice. Mm. So uh, it's, it's a shame when that goes away. Yeah. That's true. So you, you then went back to, uh, to uh, Sweden, to Stockholm. And how did you become an interpreter trainer? Was that much later or did that start more or less straight away? It started more or less straight away, but that was a longer... Uh, and more bumpy road. <laughs> Because what sometimes happens, at least in German universities, is that uh, once you have your degree, you stay on and you teach the younger students, yes. as it were, that kind of thing. But as we didn't have any interpreters, mm. uh, we hardly had any interpreting teachers either. Mm. And the interpreters who worked as teachers were also worked a lot with interpreting because as the Sweden were joining, the need was mm. desperate. So obviously, um, the, the, also the need for interpreting teachers were <laughs> yeah. was big at that time. But um, but there was also, um, maybe that's the apprentice um, side to it, but there was also a certain reluctancy to, to let new colleagues in to the training. Yes. Uh, Uh, to the training programs. So um, we would be, not only me, mm. other new colleagues as well, we would be asked to come and teach, but only on a very occasional basis and doing the the bare minimum just mm. to fill fill in where it was necessary and obviously no proper interpreting training or something, uh, interpreting teaching training. Yeah. Um, but it started almost immediately after that. I think my first classes were... I. I started as a freelance in 96, and I think my first classes were in 99, so very mm. fairly uh, shortly after. Um, and um, yeah, and then I, you know, I struggled along and taught here and taught there and, and did a little bit of everything because mm. I thought it was, I mean, I trained to become a teacher and I liked that, so mm. obviously I thought it was fun. Because I was just thinking about that, there is no course that you can take if you want to become an interpreting teacher I mean it's more or less self-taught I mean there's yes. some lit literature I suppose that you can read but uh... there's a lot of good literature but but, uh, but I'm, I'm also surprised about the training for trainers course now that it's mm -hmm. so little theory based mm -hmm. uh, I mean they are extremely seasoned trainers and everything that they say can be found in the theory and even yeah. researched uh, but they don't link to it and mm -hmm. uh, And and that's um, and I mean and at the uh, at the local universities you wouldn't have any particular uh, interpreter trainers course. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, we did run one ten um, years ago, maybe or more, mm -hmm. uh, but but it wasn't very successful because I think then on the contrary, too much was placed on theory, mm -hmm. and the the interpreting teachers came there and wanted to to get didactic training and, and methodologies and hands-on pedagogy, not pedagogical thinkers. Yes. And, <laughs> but got more of pedagogical thinkers. And, mm. um, so, but we're trying to, to remedy that as well in Stockholm. We would like to have a, 
an interpreting trainers course running uh, regularly uh, mm. because we realized that both for community and conference interpreting we cannot just rely only on on SKIK or on AIC for the training our trainers. Mm. Yeah, because AIC does uh, training for trainers. Yes. Trainings as well yes. from time to time. Yeah. And also very good ones, but you know, mm. people cannot always travel and it costs money and and if it's going to be SKIK we have to we have to watch for sending them and mm. they have to also be chosen by SKIK because there are not mm. so many places so yeah so we need to sort that out. So, but I like teaching and I struggled long. <laughs> huh. um, and how did you then start with the PhDs? Was that a necessity to become a proper, air quotes, uh, a proper interpreting teacher? No. Um, and the PhD actually was a, was a direct consequence of the Swedish government uh, deciding to not hire interpreters anymore or to to try to cut down on interpreting in the European mm. Union. Um, because I, and not only I, but many of, of the college uh, colleagues in the Swedish booth felt at that time that we need to, you know, I have to look, I have to see, I have to look around and look mm. at my resources and see what I can do other than just, uh, than just um, uh, interpreting. Mm. Mm. And, and I didn't, um, and I didn't start my PhD with the idea of becoming an interpreting teacher. Mm -hmm. I started it because it would be a good way of spending some time uh, while I realized I wouldn't have much work. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. you know, continue. Because the PhD continue. takes a lot of time as well. Exactly. And yeah. continue to build on my, uh, on my knowledge and on my CV and, mm -hmm. and also preferably earn a little money having a scholarship and so on. Mm -hmm. So it came out of that and I was, through my PhD, I was totally convinced that I would not get a position as, a, as an interpreting teacher mm -hmm. when I finished. So that wasn't a drive at all. Because you were too, too I don't know, too deep down in theory? Or, uh, no, no, simply no. <laughs> could have been, but yeah. <laughs> no, simply because at that time that was also during the seven years recess of, of okay. interpreting yeah. courses. Mm -hmm. uh, so I and I was very realistic about it, and and I wasn't sure that uh, Sweden would change its opinion because mm -hmm. this was also during um, the uh, I'm losing my dates but this was the the decision was made during the social democratic regime or social democratic parliament regime uh -huh, is yes. might, might be a big <laughs> word but the social democratic uh, government in sweden and at that point in time um, there was no, i couldn't foresee that there would be a change in government yeah. and and all political ideas aside but but it's we can just um, uh, we can just confirm that the Social Democrats were less interested in interpreting <laughs> than the uh, Conservative Alliance that yeah. we had after that. Uh, yeah, very interesting. I I was holding my breath when we had the change of government again, yeah. but so far they imagine. have kept the language regime. We'll keep our fingers crossed. Uh, yeah, but it's also very interesting from a political perspective because you would, I mean, the, the idea of interpreters have always been to, that you shouldn't be a language expert, right? You should always be able to express your feelings in whatever language and mm -hmm. get 
uh, help with the language. So, yeah. so to me, that's a very social democratic idea. It is, yeah. That's why I was uh, uh, but, surprised but to But still, hear that. that was not uh, what the social democratic government thought, mm-hmm. anyhow. It was more about saving money. Then. Yeah, mm-hmm. and we worked a lot about selling that idea as well. We worked mm-hmm. a lot about on on um, uh, policy, you know. Um, Talking to policymakers and yes. so on, but they were, they were not. It was really a deaf ear. They were not listening. They were not all. interested. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyhow, so I was commi- I you know that was a um, pastime. Sounds stupid, but it was a way of pursuing something I liked because yeah. I'd really come to like academia. Mm-hmm. I'd liked studying. I liked doing research, and I thought that you know I'll do this for the time being, and then we'll see. Yeah. And also the. We didn't have an, an interpreting training. The uh, the Institute for Interpreting and Translation Studies was completely recast at the time. Mm-hmm. They were threatened to be closed down twice. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you re- you know, no future in this probably. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and by the time I was nearing my the end of my PhD, uh, we had that government change. The yes. uh, demand for interpreting had slowly gone up. Uh, I had been. Uh, I'd gotten more jobs than in many years, so mm. I my plan was to just finish the PhD and go back to interpreting. Just finish. <laughs> just finish. Yeah, it's just a PhD. <laughs> and and the topic of your PhD is quite interesting, I think, because it also uh, I think you worked with the institutions as well, or you work with the interpreters who work at the institutions, and uh, maybe tell us about that. Yeah, this is very delicate. Can I first say that? I worked with extremely good interpreters mm-hmm. and who are extremely skilled at what they do. And uh, the results that I got that I know that people talk about mm-hmm. from time to time that about the development of uh, individual interpreters mm-hmm. uh, does not mean that the interpreters at the institutions are not good mm-hmm. or not experts mm-hmm. or not very, very experienced and good at what they do. They are. You wouldn't, you wouldn't be at the institutions. You wouldn't be hired. You wouldn't be able to stay yeah. if you weren't producing very high quality interpreting. So now that's that said. <laughs> that was the uh, the disclaimer. <laughs> that was the disclaimer. Yeah. And we do have sort of quality uh, yes. assurance yeah. schemes in place. To I, I always when I when I give lectures, I always start with that because I don't think that people realize how much an interpreter is um, is controlled or, or um, evaluated mm-hmm. in the daily uh, business. I mean, not only thinking about the fact that you're evaluated towards your customer every day, mm-hmm. but also that working at the institutions, if you're a freelance interpreter once a year, yeah. uh, there's a quality evaluation. If you work for both the institutions, there's, a, there's an assessment for the parliament and for the commission. Uh, so there's a lot of assessment for the interpreter and there's always a line where you cannot be below in order yeah. to, to stay on as a freelance Because there's a more or less direct link between your performance and how many work you get. Exactly. Yes. You're also scored according to that. So if you have a lower score, mm. I'll be you know, allowed to stay, but your score is lower than your colleagues, your colleague will be picked on the quality yeah. rating. So, yeah, so you get less work, that's true. Yeah, mm-hmm. so clearly there is uh, a lot of, of uh, quality check mm-hmm. and the interpreters working at the institutions are very good. So, but I had, uh, my material was, first I had a cross-sectional material. This mm-hmm. means that I was comparing uh, students 
two novice interpreters, two experts interpreters, and they were different individuals. Mm-hmm. So compared at the same point in time and different individuals. So that means you recorded? I recorded them when they did interpreting, mm-hmm. and then I um, I transcribed the recordings, and yeah. Which is a lot of work. <laughs> That's the yes. dull part of it. <laughs> and I made them into assessment files, both recorded and on transcript, and I had people evaluate them. So they would score them from, they had two uh, scales for scoring, one which was uh, idiomatic Swedish, uh, from not at all to very much so. Mm-hmm. And they were, sorry, they were not interpreters, they were pure customers, as we say? They were normal both. Normal people or both? Okay. Yeah, so I had normal, I had pure customers mm-hmm. and also interpreting, very experienced interpreters okay. rate them. So mm-hmm. two groups rating and two scales uh, from idiomatic Swedish, from not at all to very idiomatic mm-hmm. and, and um, all the information is the information left in the interpreting? Do we get the same information from the interpreting that we get from the original? And the same thing there from not at all to all the information is still there. Um, so, and when I did this uh, cross-sectional um, assessment, uh, I, I got the results that student that from idiomatic Swedish there was not so much difference between novice interpreters and experienced interpreters mm-hmm. which is probably logical because once you've done interpreting training and you've worked a couple of years mm-hmm. you're good at doing a good performance that's the idea yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, um, whereas the students got low scores on everything mm-hmm. <laughs> or lower scores lower, yeah. and and uh, but when it come when it comes to information transfer, mm-hmm. the very experienced interpreters had a much higher score in information transfer than the novice interpreters, mm-hmm. which is also logical. So, so it was, was more complete, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so so far everything was fine and well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was also interesting to. I also had them do retrospection, which is, by the way, a very good uh, exercise with students. Mm -hmm. When you look at or listen to your own interpreting, Mm -hmm. uh, or you look at or listen to the original speech, and you go through it methodologically and say, what what exactly did I do in this passage Mm -hmm. to interpret it? Did I, could I do it? Did I leave it out? How did I solve this difficult uh, passage? And then, and through that exercise, I could also see that the very experienced interpreters had much more strategies at hand and could reflect more yes. on what they did. Uh-huh. So no surprises at all. That would be expected. That would be expected. Mm-hmm. But then I had this wonderful longitudinal material with mm-hmm. interpreters who were recorded at uh, the interpreting program and then who agreed to, to be recorded again 15 years later. Mm-hmm. And interpreters who were, you know, very experienced uh, seen as good interpreters, uh, had um, interpreted a lot over the 15 years that had passed and so on and so forth. And the interesting thing there was that I couldn't find so much difference, neither in performance nor in strategies compared to interpreting, Mm -hmm. compared to what they did at the interpreting program. Mm -hmm. And then the first thing you could say is, of course, that they didn't develop. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, because I mean, the, the basic, it sounds obvious, but the basic assumption would be that the more you do it or the longer you do it, the better you get at it. Yes, exactly. So the 10,000 hours exactly. thing, yeah. yeah. Mm. Uh, but you could also think about it from two other perspectives, which is what I think is more interesting. First of all, 
it might say something about the methods we use to compare the experts to the novices when we do that in interpreting research, because we do that a lot. But my uh, research is the only one I know of who have compared the same individuals. So we might know a lot about the difference between individuals, but maybe less um, about the uh, less about the difference within the one person. Yeah, and obviously, when when you pick an expert to 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 be your expert in any research, you wouldn't pick somebody who's just fresh out of interpreting school. You would pick somebody who's seen by the community as an expert. Um, so uh, obviously, the the and and here they, the three that I investigated, they were seen as very good interpreters as well. But maybe mm-hmm. they were that at their interpreting program as well. So maybe yeah. you know, it, it's difficult to say how much you how much would you develop as a person, mm-hmm. and how can you measure that? Because maybe there is a way of measuring it, but I just had couldn't do it. Maybe my instruments were too blunt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but the thing is, it's it's already very difficult to evaluate what good interpretation is because it's highly subjective and somebody you know the one person is more into terminological accuracy or is it idiomatic or not the other people are just purely interested in accuracy and completeness of information so I guess that's difficult to and there's also this very interesting Spanish research uh, that where they have proven very effectively that um, you don't you think that you judge some things for instance you would say as a listener as a pure customer you would say that i don't care so much about foreign accent but i care about accuracy Mm -hmm. and then exposed to two exact same interpretings where one has a foreign accent and the other doesn't Mm -hmm. the interpreting with a foreign accent gets a lower score on accuracy because of the accent probably (laughs) i mean that's the only Mm -hmm. difference uh, so, which means that it's very difficult also to tease out what you actually score when you score things. Mm. So, anyhow, uh, <laughs> but so they did. So, not the difference that I would have expected. And yes. I've really been struggling with this because you know I can't, I can't say that these people are bad. Into it would have been so easy if they were if I just picked a few. Mm-hmm. Anyhow, to say that okay, but I didn't pick the expert ones. Yes. Uh, but they're not. They supposedly they are really good. Yes. <laughs> uh, so it's really hard. And another mm-hmm. thing uh, that came across in this research um, was in the in the interviews I did with them because mm-hmm. I since I couldn't cover a typical long term research would then you would go back to the subject and record the same thing mm-hmm. every year or every fifth year or so yes. on. But I had one recording at one point and then 15 years later. Mm-hmm. So in order to cover the 15 years, I asked them if they would agree on doing in-depth interviews. Yes. And they did. Reflecting they, on their... Exactly, reflecting on themselves and their development and mm-hmm. so on and so forth. And they did, and they were extremely open. And I was very happy about that because, uh, you know, it's not... I'm their colleague too, so it's not yeah. so easy to sit down with your colleague and tell you about strengths and weaknesses mm-hmm. and, and how... With, exactly. Mm-hmm. But they were very, very open. And um, and one thing that struck me when I, I read and reread, and I also had other colleagues, research colleagues, reading the transcript. Obviously, I'm very, I'm very, very cautious about their identity. Mm. <laughs> uh, but um, but 
one thing that was striking was that they talked a lot about um, techniques to enhance their performance. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, learning more about economy, um, preparing for uh, a different, uh, a difficult, particularly difficult meeting, um, um, learning a new language, um, mm. working on a uh, on a specific terminology that was difficult, reading up on current affairs. Uh, they even said that you know I don't even read a book anymore the, mm. the same way I used to when okay. before I was an interpreter. Because because now I read a book, I read for information, I, yeah. I collect information. It's very much a side effect of being an interpreter. Exactly. I think we can. Uh, yeah, I think we can all relate to that. Yes. Uh, but none of them said that they practiced anything. Yeah. Yeah. And I even asked them, but but don't you ever practice? And they said no. Yeah. Because the things you mentioned are basically about background knowledge, terminology, yeah. and and language, exactly. not necessarily about technique. No. Mm. And uh, and I was very surprised. And, and if you compare it to to musicians or or uh, sports, uh, mm -hmm. um, you know, football players or soccer players or whatever, they are they are brought up to practice all the time, even after the interpreting training or yeah. after the after they when they graduate from musical school or whatever. Yeah, even when they're world famous. Even yeah. when they're world mm -hmm. famous, exactly. And they work with coaches and they, they have set hours of practice every day and mm -hmm. they have very uh, you know, very goal focused things that they need to work on and not just learning a new song, but actually yeah. working on the different techniques in mm -hmm. in their instrument or in their um, and 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 this is something that that if you don't teach somebody that, then that person cannot be expected to learn it either. Yeah. You can do it intuitively, which is very much that I felt that these interpreters did. They had a lot of intuitive things that they related to. For instance, that, you know, I always listen to my colleagues because something, obviously to help them if they are in trouble, but also I hear good things they say, I can note them down, I learn that and so on. Mm -hmm. But everything, all that was intuitive. So it wasn't, uh, I, would, I would have expected what, maybe what we see more now with younger interpreters, mm -hmm. because, the, because the, the competition is ferocious, so you have yes. to do that. Um, but also because maybe we're, we have started to teach it <laughs> as interpreting trainers. Uh -huh. But you would see with younger interpreters that they, they get together in groups and they do a lot of practice and they have goals. Yeah. And I'm curious to know whether, obviously you do that when you get out of interpreting training and you want to pass, for instance, the accreditation test for the mm -hmm. institutions, then you would do that a lot. Yes. But what happens afterwards? Mm -hmm. and when you don't necessarily have an incentive to... Exactly, because there's no... I mean, I talked about that lower line. You cannot be worse than a certain level. Hopefully not, yes. No, <laughs> hopefully not. But there are no incentives to be better. Yeah. And if you're a translator, you can win prizes for good translations, mm -hmm. or you can, yeah. you can get a scholarship mm -hmm. uh, from your government because only to, you know to subside as an as a translator. Mm -hmm. There's nothing like that for interpreters. So why should you be better than the lower level? And then it's only then it's only because you want to you you want to be, you know, the best possible interpreter yes. that you can be. But there's also life, and you you sit in the booth. If you're a staff interpreter, you spend hours and hours in the booth anyway. Would you go home and do exercises after that? Probably not, <laughs> which is completely understandable. But if but, but still, compared to other virtuosos, 
uh, whatever field they're in, mm. we don't have that notion of practice. Yeah. And I wonder what that does to us as performers. But I would agree to a large extent it depends on what your interpreter training was like. For example, when, when you um, interpret at university and you get feedback from the trainer or maybe from other students, and, and I think it really depends on what they do. Do they just focus, okay, you left that out, you said ah oh, too many times, that kind of thing. And if you only know that, so it's, it's, it's quite superficial, I think. And if you don't know any better, then probably it's difficult to get there. But uh, yeah. I don't know if, if you've covered that in, in your PhD, but are there any strategies or recommendations, so things that people who have that inner incentive to be your best interpreter, what, what, what they can do? Because I, I think that the term is deliberate practice. Yes. That's more or less what it... Yes, what I'm after, the thing I've been describing now for the past couple of minutes is deliberate practice, mm. you know, to work very actively with certain exercises to improve your skill, not to add a language or, mm -hmm. or to be better at economical terminology. Exactly. But really, if we talk about interpreting, it would be the, the, the presentation skill or the transfer skill or really the skills focused only at interpreting. Mm -hmm. And, um, and w what, I, uh, what I think would be very useful for that deliberate practice and and uh, I've not heard so many people do it but maybe more than I think do it would be <laughs> would be to to sit down with colleagues right mm -hmm. to have a group of colleagues where you could actually sit down on it doesn't have to be after work at seven o'clock in the evening but I mean we don't work every day no. so obviously we could probably find time to do that and uh, and have that uh, that peer You know, to, to be coached by somebody mm. uh, who are interested in what you do and that you should actually perform better. And because of so much of our assessment is on what we do wrong or that we're not good enough, so we can't stay in the, <laughs> in the institutions or something like that, yeah. or we get a lower score, okay. uh, it would be really great to create an environment where uh, this coaches of yours because I mean you could be peer coaches it doesn't have to be somebody particularly trained for that mm -hmm. but but a coach that would want you to improve to become better and who could and you could devise different exercises to do in order to improve your interpreting mm -hmm. and I'm sure that even for a very good interpreter that would improve your oh, interpreting certainly. yeah I'm yeah. quite sure and and um, uh, but unfortunately I think it's very difficult to create that type of climate One of the yes. best, one of the best coaches I've I've had was was uh, when I was once assessed for the uh, for the European Parliament, and he was so good. He sat down and we went through everything. Uh, he's also a trained teacher, so that might be it. Yeah. And we really went through everything he'd listened to, and we discussed it, and and what was lacking, and how could I improve that, and mm. uh, so it was really a very beneficial moment. But unfortunately, I didn't get that good a score I'd hoped for so oh. I was disappointed afterwards yes. anyway <laughs> but oh. that kind of environment without having to be um, scored or, or assessed afterwards mm -hmm. just you know purely working on improving the skill and uh, I heard a, a very nice presentation from another staff interpreter last week or so who said that um, when he's in a meeting that's not particularly difficult he would think and work on his technique so he would have more or less decalage or try a bit more idioms or fewer idioms, that kind of thing. Um, 
does that still count as deliberate practice? Because he's, he's working. I mean, it's not really practice, but there are ways to sort of build it into the daily work. Yes, yeah. yes of course there are. And, and I also, I would think that because I, I, I would think that if you, if you are in a meeting, you can beforehand decide that, I mean, you would know if, it's, it, if it wasn't very particularly technical or difficult. Or, mm-hmm. And you could decide beforehand that today I'm going to do this mm-hmm. in this meeting with, with the sole purpose of trying to improve myself and my technique. Yeah. And if you record yourself on top of that, you would, it, you would have a very, very clear receipt of <laughs> whether you did that it's or not. It's brutal, yes. Right? <laughs> it can be quite sobering. <laughs> uh-huh. and, but I also think that because recordings, I don't know about the German booth, but, but I know that in the Swedish booth, students even tend to hide that they're recording themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, after, I mean, in the beginning, everything is okay. But mm-hmm. after, after a couple of years, you're supposed to be good enough. Mm-hmm. And, then, <laughs> and then if you record yourself, mm-hmm. you're, you're, first of all, people are worried that you're recording somebody else than yourself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and secondly, it sort of puts you in a, yeah, look at me, I'm recording myself, I'm better than you because oh, you're not. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't mean that I want to send that signal, but I mean that others no, that may, happens, yeah, or can uh, yeah, may, uh, may take in that signal, you know, not deliberately mm-hmm. and be, you know, uh, a bit looking down over their nose and say, oh, so you're recording yourself again. <laughs> so you then, want to get better. <laughs> yeah. And then obviously the result would be that you won't record yourself with that mm. colleague again. So yeah. yeah, so it is a delicate situation. But that's, maybe to, to finish things off, that's that's the, the idea behind deliberate practice that, let's say, okay, you have an, an easier meeting today in the morning and you say to yourself, okay, today I'm going to work on decalage or whatever. And then you really focus on that, maybe write it down, record yourself. And then at the end of the day, I mean, you probably don't have to listen to the whole day, but just... No, but you would evaluate yourself to the goal you'd set mm-hmm. and see whether that had improved or not. Yes, that's the idea. And I think you could do that in a, in a peer coaching context as well, that you say, okay, I have two or three colleagues who do the same on the same day, and then we can sort of talk about it afterwards and, and compare results maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. That sounds great. Yes. And another thing I want to say, which is very important to me, <laughs> when we talk about peer evaluation and so on, is that I think that when you are um, when you are evaluated uh, for your again for your assessment for the institutions, mm-hmm. I think that it's very important that the assessment is done by a core of assessors and only those people, mm-hmm. and that they are trained regularly yeah. a lot more than they are. I know that there. Are, a certain amount of training going on mm. uh, but I really think that, that should be something you know they should be the uh, what do you say they should be the the super assessors mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> and and being trained for doing only that and have a few people doing it because again it would avoid uh, that you are reluctant because it, it's you know it's so many different people mm-hmm. so you're reluctant that you would get the same uh, assessment yes and also that you would uh, have people assess based on, you know, their own opinion. And obviously every assessment is on your own opinion. Yeah. But the more, the more you talk about it and discuss it and, and learn about it, the less um, subjective it becomes, the more you can objectify, if you mm-hmm. like, uh, the task. So, um, so if if that could be, you know, strengthened. Yeah, <laughs> it would yeah be. I think that's the key to have the... the people who have the experience and, and a certain degree of training and how to assess 
interpreting and then also getting the, the form right because there's usually a standard form that you have to fill in when you assess someone. And I think there's a whole science uh, unto designing the questions or the, the cases, the boxes to tick yeah. <laughs> in a good way so that yeah. exactly you don't have too much subjectivity but sort of objective criteria as, as far as possible. Mm. And obviously that's easier in a bigger booth than in a smaller booth. But mm. I think that the strive should be that. Uh, that the whole exercise is as, as um, how shall we say, research-based as possible. <laughs> Which I think then is, is a nice end for this session because that's exactly what we talked about in the beginning, that um, the ideal should be that SCIC, when we do pedagogical assistance, not only send out the message and say what we want, but that we also, to a certain degree, get the feedback from research and from science and then try to improve our way of working, I think, if we can achieve that. Mm-hmm. that will be a good result mm. yes I think so too and I also think that you know you uh, there's so much cooperation where we depend on each other mm-hmm. As I, and now I'm talking about training institution versus uh, the user or the customer institution mm-hmm. and therefore we also and I know that SCIC do that a lot and this is not to say that they don't but therefore um, we since we rely so much on each other, we must rely on each other for training as well and for doing research and so on. Mm-hmm. And and I mean, look at the institutions; they are wonderful research base. If I know yes. that, <laughs> I know that from time to time it's more allowed or less allowed mm-hmm. uh, because of I suppose because of how much uh, time that goes into feeding different researchers different things. Yeah. And there's there's also a, you know you only have so much resources, but um, uh, but the 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 possibilities of of learning more about the interpreting profession and the uh, and the interpreting as as a cognitive process or as a mental process or as a social process is endless. Yeah. It's a fantastic uh, resource. Thank you very much. Thank Elisa. you. Oh, can I recommend something? You can absolutely. I would recommend every. Uh, working interpreter to read the which I so soon hope will be published okay. PhD of a colleague called Fele Duflou in the Dutch booth uh, she has written a wonderful qualitative PhD on the life as a conference interpreter Okay. and I would really recommend that to colleagues excellent, thank you thank you <laughs>